Hello, Skywatchers. Thanks for listening to the Royal Observatory's Look Up podcast. I'm Jess. And I'm Ophelia. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in September in this cosmic diary. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it's important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. So Pegasus starts to dominate the evening sky this month and is easily recognised by the four stars that make up the points of a square. The great square of Pegasus is often used as a test for how good the seeing is. So the more stars you see within the square, the better the seeing is, as it shows that the sky is dark and clear and so little movement is happening in our atmosphere. Pegasus' head and neck are represented by four stars that offshoot from the star Markab, which is the southwestern corner of the Great Square. And then the horse's front legs are attached to the star Shiat, which is the northwest corner of the Great Square. The northeasterly star in the Great Square of Pegasus is called Alpharetz, and it's shared between the constellations of Pegasus and Andromeda. If you want to try your hand at searching for galaxies far, far away this month, the new moon on the 15th is the perfect time to break out your telescope and look up into the night sky. Having a new moon means that there is almost no light from the moon getting in the way of you and your stargazing, provided that you are in an area of little light pollution. Our nearest galactic neighbour, the Andromeda Galaxy, is well placed in September skies, and if you are lucky to be in a very dark area, you might spot it with just your eyes as a fuzzy patch in the inky black sky. One way to locate it is to use the W shape of Cassiopeia in the northeastern sky. The peaks of the W appear to point to Andromeda. You can also use the center stars in Pegasus' front legs to find this galaxy. Binoculars will show Andromeda's oval shape, while a small telescope will show a larger oval with a bright center. Jupiter and Saturn are both visible to the naked eye in the night sky throughout the month. But if you have a telescope, why not take the opportunity to try and view some Galilean moons, or Saturn's rings as well? However, for anyone with a more powerful telescope, the 19th of September is a great time to view the big blue planet of Neptune, as it will be at its closest to the Earth, coinciding with the planet's perigee. So when we say a planet is in opposition, this means the planet is directly opposite the Earth in line with the Sun. So you've got the Sun on one side of the Earth and Neptune on the other, which means it'll be fully illuminated by the Sun's light. It'll be best seen in the evening of the 19th from about 9.40pm until the early hours of the morning at around 4.10am. However, due to the large distance between the Earth and Neptune, you definitely need a telescope to view or photograph it. Or, if you're an early riser, you can catch Venus in the pre-dawn sky towards the east throughout September. Similarly, 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 Mercury has its greatest elongation west on the 22nd and may be visible to the naked eye in the early hours of the morning. However, it has a peak elevation of 15 degrees above the horizon. It may not be easy to view despite its potential depending on your location. It might be time to get out your scarves and jumpers if you're living in the UK or anywhere in the Northern Hemisphere because astronomical autumn is officially here. The 23rd of September... At 7.50am BST, sees the autumnal equinox here in the Northern Hemisphere. 
This is where the northern and southern hemispheres, separated by the equator, are lit up equally by the sun, with no side physically closer to the sun due to its actual tilt. In fact, there are different ways of defining the seasons. Astronomers use the solstices and equinoxes to mark the start and end of the seasons. So for us, autumn in the northern hemisphere starts at the September equinox and ends at the winter solstice. Other definitions use changes in the behaviours of animals and plants, the climate, and even splitting the calendar up into four equal parts, and each part having three months. For those of you who are south of the equator, September is the final month of the year that the centre of the Milky Way is in a convenient location, as it will start to get too low to the horizon from October. One way to find the centre of the Milky Way is by using the bright stars in the Summer Triangle. Join Deneb and Altair and keep coming down towards the horizon until you find the teapot asterism in Sagittarius and the hook of Scorpius. You'll find the heart of the galaxy between these two asterisms. On to the moon, and the full moon at the end of this month is a special one. It's called the Harvest Moon, a name associated with the full moon closest to the equinox. Many other traditions celebrating the harvest are centred around this time as well, including Chusu which is a Korean festival of harvest and, rem- and remembrance of ancestors, Hingan, a Japanese holiday spanning from three days on either side of the equinox and uh, is also used to remember the ancestors, and Maban, a pagan harvest festival, amongst many, many others. If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to us at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website rmg.co.uk. Now, we want to give a huge shout out to Lily, one of our work experience students who wrote this script for us. So thanks, Lily. Thanks, Lily. And now it's time for our cosmic news. All right, then. It is time for the cosmic news section of our podcast. And in this section, we bring you two new news stories from the world of astronomy and space science. Last month. We brought you two stories. Um, I spoke about Chapia, which was a NASA-Mars analog mission. So it's four astronauts on the surface of the Earth, locked away pretending to be on Mars for an entire year. Um, so they got locked up last month and they're, I guess, still there this month because it's not been a year yet. No. Yeah, and what was your new story from last month? I spoke about how astronomers use neutrinos to take an image of the Milky Way. So the first ever image... Um, taken by not using light or the electromagnetic um, spectrum, and also uh, gravitational waves and how astronomers use pulsars to find a new kind of gravitational waves. Nice, which was very cool. And then we asked everyone what they would take to Mars with them, Um, because these astronauts in the analogue and real astronauts can take personal items, as long as they're practical, um, with them into space. So we just thought we would give you some of the the answers that we've got. Um, So things that people have asked to take to Mars with them include uh, video games, um, books, or an e-book. Someone suggested noise-cancelling headphones. I think that's fair. Mm, Very important. Um, Someone else wants to take their dog. Yeah. Which, sweet, less practical. Not sure you're allowed. (laughs) One of of the books um, someone said was uh, The Martian, which I thought was interesting. Mm, I personally think that's a very good idea. For anyone that hasn't read The Martian, um, it's about, oh, 
I don't want to spoil it. It's about a man that goes to Mars and then his journey in the book gives you lots of practical tips for surviving events on Mars. Is that okay as a summary? Yeah, yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to ruin books no, for people. You don't want to spoil anything. You might be two thirds of the way through and have stopped to listen to this podcast. <laughs> there is, of course, a film as well adaptation. Oh, yeah. I forgot yeah. about the film. Brilliant. So that was last month, but it is a new month. We have new news stories. We do. I don't know why I keep saying new news stories because it's really hard to say. <laughs> um, Would you like to start? Yeah, sure. I can start. Um, you presumably, Ophelia, have heard of the Voyager missions. No. Yes. Yes, I have. <laughs> well, it's okay if you haven't, because you weren't alive when they launched. No, I wasn't. No. <laughs> I feel they just did some quick mental maths. <laughs> I'm alive. I've been alive for a lot of space missions, but not that one. <laughs> All right. So a, a quick recap on on the Voyager missions for anyone that hasn't heard of them. Um, there's two. There's Voyager one and Voyager two. Uh, they both launched in 1977. Um, Voyager 2 actually launched first on August 20th, and then Voyager 1 launched uh, start of September, a few days later. Um, they left the Earth behind, they travelled past the gas giants, did some very important observations and science of the gas giants. Uh, Voyager 2 passed by Uranus and Neptune, and it still is the only spacecraft to have passed by Neptune, is that right? Yeah, and, yeah. and Uranus. And Uranus. Yeah. They did things like discover moons of all four gas giants. They studied the magnetosphere and, and the weather and the climate of those gas giants. They looked at the ring systems of those gas giants. But maybe more famously, or more importantly, they kept going. And they became the first objects to ever leave our solar system. First artificial objects. First artificial objects to ever leave our solar system. <laughs> Fair point. Um, um, so they're the first ever man-made objects to have left the solar system. They are both incredibly far away. I've never thought about this before, but they're not together. Mm. People refer to them as Voyagers 1 and 2. Um, but one's gone out the plane of our solar system sort of above mm -hmm. the solar system, if you're thinking about above and below as the Earth's north and south pole. So one's gone above the solar system, and the other's gone below the solar system. So they're going in opposite directions. Um, Voyager 1 has gone a bit further about 22 billion kilometers away. And Voyager 2, can't remember how many billions of kilometers away it is, but quite a few. <laughs> quite a few. <laughs> so yeah, I think they're really, they're really interesting. They're the most distant man-made objects out there. Mm -hmm. And they're also old. Um, someone referred to them recently as vintage, which I quite like. <laughs> they're almost 47 years old. Almost 46 years old, sorry. So by the time you listen to this podcast... They'll be about 46 years old. Um, they're aiming to get them to their 50th birthday. They're not solar-powered because they're moving away from the sun, so into more sort of distant areas where it's darker. Uh, they're powered by RTGs, which is radioisotope thermoelectric generators, which is effectively a lump of something radioactive. They use plutonium-238. Um, and the lump of something radioactive creates heat, and they use that heat to create electricity. So they have enough power... Um, but they are sort of slowly breaking down because they are so old and they've been out there so long. Um, and the actual news story, I'm finally getting there, <laughs> the news story is that a couple of weeks ago, in July, the engineers and the scientists who were operating Voyager 2 accidentally sent the wrong command to it. Ooh. Mm. Um, more painfully, they wrote the wrong command 
realized it was wrong and corrected the error in their programming. And then there was some kind of miscommunication and the original uncorrected code got sent to Voyager. Ah. Which is frustrating, isn't it? Should have labeled it correctly. Mm. It's like when you (laughs) proofread an email. Yeah. (laughs) And then send an earlier draft of the email or something. But worse. Um, So we communicate with Voyager using... um, radio waves so we have sort of antennas here on the earth that beam signal to voyager and it beams signal back to us so Mm. we can talk to it um but this incorrect code reorientated voyager 2 so its dish its receiver wasn't pointing towards the earth anymore so its listening ear was no longer pointed directly at the earth Mm -hmm. um, which is a problem because once the receiver is no longer pointing at the earth it can't hear any of your commands so it can't hear you telling it to turn around and point at the earth again you've mm. lost t- lost touch yeah yeah how do they get it back they used the whole of the the deep, deep space network the deep space network is a series of uh, antennae of, of dishes satellite dishes you could call them all over the world um to listen really really carefully and they heard a very faint signal from voyager 2 which meant they knew it was still working mm-hmm um, they couldn't talk to it directly, but they knew it was still out there and still functioning. And then they used the, I think the biggest, one of the biggest uh, satellite dishes in the deep space network, which is about 70 meters in diameter, Wow! Um, which is massive. It's in Australia. And they beamed a really, really powerful message at it, um, which is the same as shouting. <laughs> Voyager, <laughs> turn around. <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so because the satellite dish on Voyager wasn't pointed at us, uh, wasn't correctly orientated, it couldn't hear direct signals, but it did hear this signal just because of how incredibly loud it was, effectively. So it <laughs> yelled at Voyager 2, and that worked. Oh. It shifted again slightly, and now we're in direct contact once again, and we can talk at normal volumes. Okay, that's good. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. That's a relief. Mm, it's a happy news story. Mm. If that hadn't worked, then would we have lost contact with it forever? We might have done. Um, the, the programming has lots of sort of fail-safes and backups, and one of those fail-safes meant that sometime in October, it would have reset, and during that reset, hopefully reorientated back towards the Earth. So it might have turned itself in October, um, but they would prefer to have control over mm. the spacecraft and be able to communicate with it. Yeah. Um, so maybe would have lost contact only until October, but maybe forever, okay. which would have been a shame. They would have, mm. yeah. Well, that's a that's a very happy uh, news story. Mm-hmm. How far away is Voyager two? Uh, currently, about nineteen billion kilometers. Billion kilometers. That's, yeah. that's far. A billion is is nine zeros. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, how long did we have to sort of wait to to check that it's mm. worked? Because that distance. Um, it would have taken time for, for the signal to get to Voyager yeah. and for it to come back mm-hmm. to us. That's a good point. Um, it would take about, it took them about 18 hours to get the signal from the Earth to Voyager because radio waves travel at, at the speed of light. They are light. Mm-hmm. Um, so 18 hours to get from the Earth all the way to Voyager. So another 18 hours for the signal to go from Voyager back to the Earth. Wow. So they had to wait, what is that, almost 40 hours, but over a day to check that it worked properly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that must have been a very tense couple of days. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the Voyagers 1 and 2 are doing science experiments. Even though they're 45 years old and slowing down, they are still doing science. Uh, they also carry a little sort of time capsule. 
called the Golden Record, um, which I'm sure you've heard of. Mm -hmm. And the Golden Record is a, a record that contains a sort of a history of humanity or a representation of humanity uh, for anyone that might find Voyages 1 or 2. So it contains things like uh, music. So there's some Beethoven in there. There's some Chuck Berry, some other songs. Pictures of people and pictures of the earth, like photographs recorded on there. Um, and there's also people saying hello in 55 different languages. So lots of greetings for the aliens. Oh, Potential yeah. hypothetical aliens. <laughs> that's nice. Mm, I thought so. A little advert for us. Mm -hmm. One other thing is that we say they've left the solar system. But do you think we could try and explain where the solar system ends? Yeah. Mm. Where does the solar system end? Well, <laughs> there isn't a sort of line. We haven't built a fence. There's no <laughs> official point. Um, but we tend to refer to something called the heliosphere. And the heliosphere is the region of space dominated by the sun. So by radiation or by plasma, by solar wind coming off of the sun, going out into space. Um, so it's not sphere-shaped, but it's a huge area around the sun and around all of the planets, um, influenced by the sun. And then there's a point where that sort of heliosphere stops, and then you have interstellar medium, so you have just general space that isn't our solar system space. Is that mm -hmm. a good rough description? Anything you'd add? Yeah, yeah. So it's where the sun's influence kind of stops being the dominant thing mm. i'm going off topic but i mentioned that the heliosphere isn't a sphere mm -hmm. um, which is just something i really like i like imagining is if you picture a boat going really fast through a lake you have water sort of in front of the boat right and that kind of shape you could picture the shape of water flowing around the boat mm -hmm. the sun isn't still the sun is orbiting the center of the galaxy at like 230 kilometers every single second so the sun is moving through space all of the planets are moving with the sun through space. And so this bubble, this heliosphere around the sun is also moving through space and sort of pushing through the interstellar medium. Hmm. So it's shaped a bit like a comet. It'll have a trail, a tail at one end. Hmm. Like how a planet's magnetosphere aren't spheres. They're a similar kind of shape. Hmm. Um, I just think when we think about the solar system, we think about it represented with the sun and everything moving around the sun. We don't normally think about the sun Flying through space <laughs> and everything moving with it. And uh, yeah, the solar system doesn't just end with the planets and mm -hmm. with Pluto. Nice. So my new story is that Voyager 2 still exists. We lost contact. We gained contact again. Yay. Yay. What about you? Um, so my story is about a far away star. Mm -hmm. um, actually, a, a pair of stars in the large Magellanic clouds. So the Large Magellanic Clouds is one of the um, Milky Way satellite galaxies. You've got the Large and the Small Magellanic Clouds. And they kind of orbit around us, uh, at least around our galaxy. So these binary stars, together they're known as Macho 80.7443.1718. Cool. Very catchy. Mm. Um, they're not called Macho because they're, you know, brawny. <laughs> they're called Macho because they were first recorded by the Macho Project from the 1990s. They actually behave in a similar way to the Earth and the Moon. We get tides here because of the Moon's gravitational pull on us. So as the Moon orbits around the Earth, it pulls on the seas that's you know facing the Moon itself, causing high tide uh, on that part. Um, 
of the Earth. Um, and the Moon also pulls on the solid Earth as well. So that shifts the Earth's land towards the Moon, which leaves a, a bulge of water on the other side because the seas there aren't getting pulled um, as much by the Moon. Um, and so we get tides. And astronomers have found tides on this pair of stars as well. So you've got a primary star, which is um, huge. It is 35 times more massive than our sun. Wow. And um, the smaller star orbits around it. Um, So as the smaller star goes around this bigger star, it actually distorts the shape of the the primary star, making it look a bit more oval shape. Um, And that means we see the stars sort of brighten and dim, uh, periodically because of how it's changing shape and so we're seeing sort of more of it or less of it depending on how it's been distorted um, and that's why these stars or these types of stars are also called heartbeat stars because they brighten and, and, and dim kind of like how um, so regularly kind of like how a heart beats which oh, I think is quite that's nice. That's a nice name. But what they what these astronomers noticed was that the stars brightened a lot more than other stars, other similar kinds of stars. So usually the the brightness changes by 0.1% or so. But for Matcha here, they actually get uh, 20% brighter. Wow. Um, at times. Compared so to 0.05, did you say? 0.1. 0.1 to 20. Ooh. Yeah. So that's a, that's, a, that's a really big difference. Mm-hmm. And when they modelled um, these stars using computer simulations... Um, they realised that the smaller star was actually causing tides on the bigger star. Um, so just like the tides we get here on the Earth, we get um, uh, waves as well. So you've got uh, huge waves, tidal waves um, on the bigger star. Um, so big, in fact, that they are about as tall as three of our suns stacked together. What? I nodded. <laughs> and then I, then I processed what you were saying. So the tides mean that part of the star is bulging out yes. to a distance. Yes, so wow. uh, about 2.7 million miles. Wow. <laughs> That's a really big tide. That is a very big tide. Um, and when the waves break, um, material is flung um, around. So like how you know water waves here break, you get these splashes and, um, of water. And yeah, this is the first time this, is, this has ever been mm. seen. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's unlikely to be the only one as well. Um, so I guess we'll be on the lookout for these, uh, these kinds of stars. Um, and, and because the scale of the tidal relationship between those two stars is so uh, overwhelming, um, these stars have a, have a nickname. They're, they're called Heartbreak Stars. Oh, because they're heartbeat stars, but with overwhelming tides. Yeah. Heartbreak <laughs> stars. That's sweet. So is it, it's a stable orbit, this binary orbit. Mm-hmm. They're not coming closer together and m- crashing. So their orbits are oval-shaped rather than elliptical, um, rather than circular. <laughs> um, but the primary star is nearly at the end of its life. So it's already started to fuse helium nuclei together. Um, and so it will explode in a supernova pretty soon. Of course, in astronomical terms, pretty soon is uh, 
quite big, quite, mm. <laughs> quite long, away, yeah. quite long. Um, and yeah, when that happens, it's gonna it's gonna destroy the uh, the smaller star. Will it? Mm. That will be a true heartbreak. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking if it didn't destroy it, then you'd have like a neutron star or a black hole and the other star could fall into it. <laughs> Finally completing the union. <laughs> no? Okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> the uh, smaller star actually orbits around the prim- primary star uh, every 33 days or so, so roughly a month. Mm-hmm. It's quite, a, quite close. Yeah, quite yeah. a short orbit. Our closest planet takes 88 days to go around the sun. Mm. Mm. Three times as long. Mm. Roughly. Roughly. <laughs> Maths. Maths. <laughs> <laughs> There's our two news stories for the month. We've mm-hmm. got the return of Voyager 2, Ooh. even though it's billions of kilometres away from us, and we've got the heartbreak stars that will never be together. <laughs> so we should ask our audience a question, and... Oh, because of Voyager's golden records, mm. these this little time capsule on board the spacecraft that's been there for 46 years and will be there for hundreds, thousands, millions of years. Because even if the spacecraft runs out of power, it will just keep going on the trajectory it's currently on until something stops it. Mm-hmm. So it will keep traveling through space even when it's turned off. So we thought we could ask our listeners what they would put on a spacecraft. As a sort of time capsule. As a time capsule. So if we're building Voyager 3, we're launching it maybe the end of this year. <laughs> um, and it's going to be traveling out of the solar system and then keep on going for billions of kilometers for thousands of years until it reaches another star. Hundreds of thousands of years, maybe. Uh, what would you put in that time capsule? Hmm. Would it be a picture of your dog? Would maybe. it be a copy of your favorite song? Maybe. Or a copy of The Martian? Copy of The Martian. (laughs) What about you, Ophelia? Do you have an idea what you would put on this golden golden record or just in this time capsule? We can make it a physical box. We've got the budget. It's imaginary. I will put this recording on it. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Okay. Do you think the whole of humanity is represented by us? (laughs) (laughs) Um, what would you put? Maybe it would be a photo of my dog. Aww. I think the aliens deserve to see my dog. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's music that I would want, but does the, rest of, does the rest of humanity want the same songs as me? I mean, the Voyagers were, were, were launched in the 70s, right? Mm. So we've had 50 years more of music since then. Oh, maybe one song from each year from the past 50 years. Ooh. Mm. The, the, the biggest selling Song? No, just my personal oh, okay. favourite song from each year. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a fun, fun playlist. Cool. Well, we'll keep thinking about what we want in the time capsule. You think as well. Uh, if you want to tell us, you can tell us on our Twitter account. X account. Yeah, which is at ROG Astronomers. Join us again next month where we'll have more night sky highlights and more news for you. But for now, all that's left to say is bye and keep looking up. Bye!